0: This morning is from Matthew chapter 15 verses 21 through 28. Then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Gentile woman who lived there came to him pleading, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, for my daughter is possessed by a demon that torments her severely. But Jesus gave her no reply, not even a word. Then his disciples urged him to send her away. Tell her to go away, they said. She's bothering us with all her begging. Then Jesus said to the woman, I was sent only to help God's lost sheep, the people of Israel. But she came and worshiped him, pleading again, Lord, help me. Jesus responded, It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. She replied, that's true, Lord, but even dogs are allowed to eat the scraps that fall beneath their master's table. Dear woman, Jesus said to her, your faith is great. Your request is granted. And her daughter was instantly healed. The word of the Lord.
1: I am sweating, and I haven't even started, which is a bad sign. I think it's because the passage is hard, so. Um, I'm donating a pen to someone here before I knock it off. My name's Phil Bryan. I'm one of the elders here at Trinity Fellowship Church. And... um, Okay, I thought it was me. It's all good. All right. Um, The way this goes is uh, I get a call every so often from one of the pastors, usually Mike Traben, or excuse me, Mike, Mike Stroh, you know, Mike, Pastor Mike calls me, and uh, Mike Stroh, and he says, hey, would you be interested in preaching? And I say, sure, if it works out on the schedule, and he says, this is sort of the chunk, or this is the section, but you can pick a chunk. So he said, Matthew 15's the section, you can pick a chunk. I said, okay, great. And I sat down and I read chapter 15 and I said, well, I don't really know what chunk I'm going to pick, but I'm definitely not picking the Seraphonician woman. <clears throat> not going to do it. Uh, it's complicated. I don't like it. It's not great. I'm not going to do it. And then I kept reading and I thought, oh, shoot, Lord, I get it. I have to teach on that passage, don't I? Um, and the reason is because this passage, in my opinion, this section holds together what Matthew's doing in the entire chapter. So, we're going to look at the Syrophoenician woman and how it fits in the whole thing, but first, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to teach your word, but Father, I pray I am a, I am a, um, a lousy mouthpiece for you. So, I pray you will uh, purge my words of that which is false, and leave only your truth in the hearts, minds, and souls of the people here. And may we be changed by you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So, thank you, Linda, for reading. Um, It says, I should set a timer. It's always worth your time for me to set a timer, isn't it? it says, Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Um, where there was, if you were keeping up, they had recently been in Gennesaret, um, a Jewish area where Jesus had been doing things. He'd been healing. He'd been, he did the miracle of feeding the 5,000. Um, and now it says he withdrew to this place. Now, you need to understand, withdrew. Uh, Jesus did a lot of withdrawing for various reasons. Um, and sometimes it was just get on a boat, get away. Sometimes it was go up the hill and pray. This is a 30 to 50 mile trek to this area. So when it says Jesus withdrew, this isn't like he just went to the next town. Jesus went a ways away, which means he did it on purpose. Okay, lest you should think Jesus was just kind of like, I don't know, guys, let's see what happens next. He is God, after all. So he had a plan. And he says, let's go to this spot. And they go to this spot. Now, the thing you have to know about this area is it is not Jewish. It is it is if, Again, if you have headings in your Bible, it may say the Syrophoenician woman. I have the New American Standard that I use, and it, has, it says the Syrophoenician woman. You notice Syrophoenician's not in the text. But that's what this region was, a place where um, it had been originally, um, or, or years and years and years before, under Greek rule, there's the Phoenician part. So Syria and Phoenicia, and so this woman, from this place that's coming to, that, that Jesus is coming to, she's She's not Jewish. She doesn't have a Jewish background. And so Jesus has gone specifically to a non-Jewish area. And we're going to see why. He went from this area, withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon, and a Canaanite woman, excuse me, a Canaanite woman. Now, in in the New American Standard, it says that I I don't remember what what, uh, term was used. Um, Maybe Gentile was used. Is that what it said? It's interesting here, Canaanite. Um, if you, like me, grew up in Sunday school, in VBS, you know the Canaanites were the arch enemies of Israel, right? You Go back and read your Hebrew scriptures, Old Testament, all the stories were about Israel trying to go to the land of Canaan, and they, this group of people, the Canaanites, were, they were nationally, culturally, racially, religiously opposed to Israel. So there was zero love. In fact, there was hatred and disgust and disdain for each other. Now, the interesting thing here is when Matthew uses this term and he says Canaanite woman, the Canaanites were not a thing at this point in history. Right? The Canaanites had basically been almost knocked out of existence. They were irrelevant politically, socially. Again, that's why your text may say Syrophoenician woman. It didn't matter that she was Canaanite except to the Holy Spirit when he was inspiring Matthew to write this down. Canaanite woman. The Canaanites had long since ceased to be Israel's arch enemy only because they were almost taken out of existence. King David had first subdued them and gotten them under control, and then from there they'd been almost wiped out. She was historically a Canaanite, but she wasn't really a Canaanite now. But she came from the place, and Matthew specifies it. A Canaanite woman. And then, of course, there's the woman piece, right? Were women held in the same regard as men in this society at this time? No, no. I'm not sure they are now. I hear there's this thing called a pay gap. Uh, Anyhow, that's another conversation, right? So she's got two strikes against her culturally, doesn't she? She's Canaanite and she's a woman. She came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Now, if it wasn't enough that we had Canaanite woman, the words coming out of her mouth are should be flabbergasting to any Jew listening. And there were a few, roughly 13, listening to this. The reason it's so exceptional is that here she is, has nothing to do with the nation of Israel, comes from a line of people who were like diametrically opposed to Israel. And her confession of who Jesus is is clearer and more on the nose than anyone really has done. She gets the fullness of who his messianic identity is. Son of David is immense to be coming out of anyone's mouth, but hers especially. Because she's saying, I recognize you as the messianic king of Israel. And then when she says, have mercy on me, my daughter's cruelly demon-possessed. She's saying, I also believe you have control over the supernatural realm. I'm going to just let Lord go because it could have been a, a formal, polite greeting, but that may be part of the deal too. But it doesn't matter. Son of David is enough. This lady got it when it came to who Jesus was. And there's no reason she should. That's what's so amazing. is isn't the first time it's happened. I remember a couple of spies on a rooftop being shown up by a prostitute in the room below in terms of faith. You ever notice that they... they, Rahab the harlot, she never drops that title. Here's the Canaanite woman. You could read it as, why do they keep bringing up the thing that separates? Because these are people who while appearing separate are so close to God. Now, We've already had an experience earlier in the book of Matthew, chapter 8, when when a centurion, also a Gentile, comes to Jesus and says, my servant, can you heal my servant? And what did Jesus say then? Anybody remember? He said, okay, let's go. Okay, let's go. Later, we're going to have Jesus hanging on a cross next to a criminal, and the criminal's going to say, Lord, please remember me when you enter your kingdom. And what's Jesus going to say? See you later. So what do you think he says to her? This is why I don't like this passage. (laughs) But he didn't answer our word. That doesn't seem very nice. And his disciples came and implored him. Okay, good, good, good. The disciples are going to come. But what did they implore him about? Send her away. She keeps shouting at us. They don't come and say, Lord, this poor woman with a demon-possessed daughter. Lord, this woman who needs compassion. Lord, this image-bearer of Yahweh. They go, oh my gosh, she won't shut up. Give her what she wants and make her go. I haven't seen anybody so annoying in a long time. And I'm hanging out with Peter. My goodness gracious, get her out of here. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Is Jesus just being rude? Is he being racist? What's he doing? I was sent to the the lost sheep of Israel. Now, it's not an untrue statement. Was Jesus sent to be the Messiah of Israel? her own confession agrees to this, doesn't it? But we know, again, Jesus has been including Gentiles from the very beginning, right? What's the first verse we learn in the Bible when we're kids? It's okay, you can speak up, it's all right. I'm a teacher, I'm used to dialogue, I'm getting really where I can't live without it. What's the first verse? For God so loved the world. Not for God so loved the Jews, for God so loved the elect. Sorry, Calvin. Not that Calvin, the other Calvin, the other John Calvin. For God so loved the elect, no, for God so loved the chosen, God so loved the world. His plan has always been to reconcile all of creation to himself. But we know the plan was to roll out in stages a little bit, right? So Jesus isn't completely wrong here, but again, it feels kind of tone deaf. At best, tone deaf, at worst, vicious. I wasn't sent to you, lady. But she came and began to bow down before him. She's kneeling. She says, Lord, please help. She's begging. This is her kid, man. Please. He answered, verse 26. He said, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Ouch. The dog reference is actually picking up the ancient slur that was used by Jews to talk about Canaanites. That was what they called them, dogs. He says, I wouldn't give the kids food to the dogs, would I? Okay, all right. Time out, Lord. What is going on here? See why I didn't want to teach this passage? I still don't, and I'm doing it. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from the Master's table. I have three dogs Dottie, Cosmo, and Stella. And they have no manners at all. If you've been to my home, you know this. But they suddenly become the most obedient, attentive dogs at three specific times a day. Do you know what they are? When humans sit down to breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and then they sit there, how good I'm being I'm being better than her they're waiting for those crumbs from the table man she says even the dogs grab the crumbs man and then Jesus says oh woman your clever reply was amazing what a zinger it shall be done for you as you wish See, that's how some of us read this. Did you notice that? Some of us read it that she finally earned something here. What does Jesus say? Woman, your faith is great. How was her faith in verse 22? When she called him the son of David and said, heal my daughter. How was her faith in verse 22? Was it any different? Did she come to faith? in the middle of this argument with what looks like a stubborn rabbi? Did she suddenly understand the truth about him later in the passage? When did she have faith? She had faith before she got up in that morning and walked all the way to see him is when she had faith. So when Jesus says, your faith is great, this isn't because of something that just transpired. So why in the world is he having this frankly kind of rude conversation with her? If you were going to give her the healing anyhow, based on faith, why did we go through that? Why? Well, that's where we have to look at the rest of the passage. I was a pastor full-time for 17 years. I went to Dallas Seminary after college, got a degree, became a pastor. Um, Somewhere in there, for a variety of reasons, mostly economic Um, I ended up starting to teach part-time and then it began to be full-time. And I saw it as a huge corruption of God's will in my life because obviously I was supposed to work in churches. I've now been a teacher for about 15 years. Um, And what I can tell you is I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. And what's interesting is I now read the Bible like a teacher rather than a preacher. And I realize Jesus, he was called rabbi after all, wasn't he? He was never not teaching. He never missed an opportunity, right? In in, in education, we call it a teachable moment. Watch out for teachable moments. They weren't in your plan, lesson plan for the day. They weren't in the curriculum, but somebody asks a question. If you're paying attention, you'll notice a teachable moment. Jesus is having a teachable moment with whom? The disciples. So now, let's take a look. How does chapter 15 start? Chapter 15 starts off with Jesus once again wrangling with the Pharisees. Once again, wrangling with Pharisees. And, and, and I'm not going to spend time here because it'll be too long and I want to try to keep the sermon fairly short. Amen. Can I get an amen for short sermons? All right. <laughs> but it starts off with the Pharisees questioning Jesus about a matter of tradition and they're asking about hand washing of all things. And what had happened was God had given His Word, His perfect, wonderful Word and then... Scribes and, and Pharisees and scholars and lawyers sat around and gave commentary on his word. And eventually, what happened was people held the commentary in as high or higher esteem than God's word. And over thousands of years, this tradition had elevated itself, f- like f- horribly, to become as important or more important than the precepts of God. And that's exactly what God calls him out on. He says, You're asking me about traditional hand washing. But your hearts are corrupt when it comes to people. He quotes Isaiah. He says, in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. He then goes on to talk about what really does corrupt people. Because it sure as heck isn't washing your hands. By the way, I am in favor of hand washing. I want to be clear. Is, is it hygienically good for you? But cleanliness is next to godliness is not in the Bible. Okay? God's got bigger fish to fry than your dirty fingernails. He then talks about what really does corrupt us. He says, you all think what goes into your mouth. See, the whole hand-washing thing is, are you dirtying something you're about to eat? Because we have all our food restrictions, too. And Jesus says, you think what goes in corrupts. You know, what goes in gets eliminated. It's called the digestive system. I know because I designed it. You know what corrupts you? What comes out of the mouth, not what goes in. What comes out of the mouth are the words you have about the people and the places and the issues around you. And if they're full of hate and slander, guess what? You can wash your hands all day, but your heart is far from the Lord. Far says, you've missed the point. So the beginning of the chapter is Pharisees and talking about what comes out of the mouth. And then we have the Syrophoenician woman. What comes out of Jesus' mouth? All of the stereotypes and biases the Jews had held about Canaanites And foreigners, Samaritans, you name it. Jesus drops these casually into the conversation. Something every Jew would have known and agreed to. Probably thinking, I wonder if the twelve will notice. Did the twelve say, whoa, 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 Lord. You just told us what comes out of our mouths. Why are you hard on this lady? What did the twelve say? Oh, just make her stop. Oh, Canaanite women. Brother, what do you expect? She's a harpy. Just. I think what Jesus is trying to do is say, guys, are, do you notice something here? See, when I teach my students, I will provoke them. I'm teaching an ethics class this summer. It's an intensive ethics class. On the first day, I said, if I do my job right, I will be sure of two things in this class. You will get angry at some point. And number two, you will question something you believe to be true. Those two things should happen if I do my job right as a teacher. Jesus is doing the same thing. And of course, following a lesson, you have to have an assessment. Right? We have to test the skills Did they acquire the skills? By the way, whenever I think I have a bad class, they're just not getting it, I just read the Gospels. I'm like, Jesus had the dumbest class of students ever. These guys never got it. They failed every exam. And even when they got a few right, they turned around and made a bigger mess. Within seconds of Peter being asked, who do you say that I am? He said, you're the the, Christ. Christ. He goes, way to go, Simon. In just a minute, what does he say to him? Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> so, <laughs> I passed the quiz, failed the exam. What are you going to do? This was something for the display of the disciples, and I believe that that can continue on in the following verses. In verse 29, after the Syrophoenician woman, it says, Departing from there, Jesus went along by the sea of Galilee, Having gone up on the mountain, he was sitting there. Large crowds came to him again. It's probably not Jewish crowds. Bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others, they laid them down at his feet. And what did he do? Did he take one at a time and berate them? He healed them. He was always going to heal them. He was always going to make her daughter whole. She always had the faith. The dialogue was for the benefit of the disciples who were once again not paying close attention. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and what did they do? They glorified the God of Israel. Then, in the final test, Jesus goes, well, I'll throw him a softball. I'll ask him a question I've asked before. I'm going to ask them a question we just did last week. So surely they'll remember this one. This time it's 4,000. But there's a key difference. 4,000 what? Gentiles. So it's a double test. Have you caught how I'm interacting with the Gentiles? And did you catch what I'm capable of doing in, when it comes to catering? It's a double header. Surely you can get half of this problem right, at least. He called the disciples together, verse 32. He said, I feel compassion for these people. Wow. What a far cry from, I'm not going to, you know, I gave no answer to the Syrophoenician woman. He felt compassion for her too. Just like he felt compassion for Mary and Martha when they accused him of dragging his feet. He's always teaching. He's always teaching. I feel compassion for these people. They've remained with me now three days, have nothing to eat, and I do not want them to send them away hungry. They might faint on the way. And then Bartholomew said, well, Lord, we all know what you can do. Cool. No. disciple said, where would we possibly get so many loaves in this desolate place? Well, <laughs> you Well, golly, Jesus, I don't know how we'd feed anybody. And Jesus said to them, I almost feel like you can hear the sigh in his voice. How many loaves do you have? As if it mattered. How many loaves? Seven, a few small fish. We can't, we can't He directed the people to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves and the fish. Giving thanks, he broke them, started giving them to the disciples. Disciples gave them to the people, and they all ate and were satisfied, and they picked up what was left of the broken pieces. Seven large baskets full, and those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. I love the structure of the narrative. We start with Jesus feeding the 5,000 at the end of 14, and then we go to the Pharisees, the people who, by rights, should have studied the Scriptures more closely than anybody and be most ready to notice when the Messiah shows up and what are they doing? Arguing over a secondary, a secondary is hand-washing even a secondary issue? Arguing over a, an opinion of a tradition and doing so while they don't even bother to keep the commands of the the triune God. The people who should have gotten it, ye chosen seed of Israel's race, ye ransomed from the fall. (laughs) We just sang it. If anybody should have gotten it, it should be the guys who spend their time studying the book of the law. And What do these guys do? I want to talk about hand washing, Lord. Don't feel good about the number your disciples are keeping. He says, it's not what goes in, it's what comes out. He goes and he sees the Syrophoenician woman and what comes out of the disciples. Get rid of her. Just get rid of her. And then Jesus turns around and he goes from healing one to healing the multitudes, to feeding the multitudes. None of them Jews. 16 starts. What's your heading say? Pharisees. There we are again, right? How do you think this one's going to turn out? Same song, second verse, chapter 16 version. A whole lot worse. I love the narrative structure. When I became an English teacher, I started to look because I was teaching students the way you make an argument matters. The way you write this down, the order you put your points, the order you bring your evidence, how you support it. And then one day I was reading the Gospels and I went, ding! Oh my goodness. The way you put it together, the way you order your argument. Who was Matthew writing to? A predominantly Jewish audience would they know the dog's reference? Would they, would they be thinking and internalizing those statements Jesus had made? This week, as I said, I was teaching ethics and um, I came across this line from a piece of writing that we use in class. I'd forgotten about it. I read it this week. To refuse hearing an opinion because you are sure that it is false is to assume that your certainty is the same thing as absolute certainty. All silencing of discussion is an assumption of infallibility. When I say, I don't want to hear what that Canaanite woman has to say, what if they had just said, When she walked up and said, son of David, they went, whoa, 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 whoa. How'd you know that? How how did you know that? Hey, that's so cool. You're not supposed to know that. You're a Canaanite. How did you know that? Their minds were made up. She can't be right because she's a Canaanite woman. To assume that my certainty is the same thing as absolute certainty and silencing of discussion is an assumption of infallibility. That's John Stuart Mill from 1859, his essay on liberty. It's a good one. A little light reading this summer. It's a beach read. Not bad. When I say I don't need to hear what you have to say, I'm saying I have the knowledge of God. My knowledge is infallible. No need to listen to your side. No need to hear what you have to say. No need to confront an opposing opinion. If Jesus did anything in the Gospels, he debunked people's presuppositions, didn't he? They were sure they knew it all. And Jesus took what they thought they knew and pretty much every time flipped it on its head, didn't he? Why do I think he got out of that business with me? Because I'm just so dang smart. I'm sure my reading is right. Or the one that I got 40 years ago, and I, I put it in Tupperware airtight and popped it in the freezer so nothing could harm it. Never to be considered again because I got it right the first time. Fo show. Sure. I told this story at my dad's funeral. <clears throat> my dad's my hero. Um, when I was in seminary, we'd, get, we'd go get lunch quite a bit. Because um, he was a chaplain of Dallas Seminary for 35, I don't know, 30 plus years. And uh, anyhow, I would drop by and we'd go to lunch. And <coughs> I walked into his office and I remember every every few months there was some new hot topic that was being debated in Christendom, right? Like, there still is, you know? Just, just keep your eyes peeled. Subscribe to Christianity Today. Look at the bestseller list at Mardell, um, whatever. There's always something being argued, isn't there? And, and I, whatever the, the cause, the, the, the controversy du jour was, I walked into my dad's office and he was sitting there reading the book from the other side. And I kind of was <sighs> pearl clutching. <gasps> Lord, <laughs> you know, dad, you know. I was like, Dad, what are, you, what are you reading that book for? He was like, I just want to see what they had to say. And then, I, then I did this assumption, I went, oh, 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 so you know better how to argue with them. He went, no, I just want to see what they have to say. He, I think he could tell that I was an idiot. And he went, he said, son, I already know what my side thinks. I don't need to read my side's book because I already know what it says. He said, but I've become aware there may be people on the other side who love Jesus just as much as I do, even though we disagree on this topic. And I'd want to see what they have to say because it's possible I haven't thought of something that they have. And I'll never forget after that, he said, if you don't want to become like Close minded and angry and basically dumb, he said, You're going to have to swim upstream your whole life. Because the temptation is going to be just to surround yourself with people who always think the same thing as you, but then you're never challenging your thinking. You're never checking to see if maybe, just maybe, I'm not infallible. Maybe I could get something wrong. He said, You need to swim upstream intellectually son i was like that's heavy can we get a burger never forgotten it what are the options if you swim upstream intellectually one of two things will happen you put your ideas your your beliefs to the test and you discover guess what i mean really put them to the test and you discover i think they're still right what do you now have even greater certainty, because now that's been tested. Or you put them to the test and you go, I hadn't thought of that. And just so you know, that's usually going to come from the person you least want it to come from. (laughs) Because the people who all already think exactly like you are probably not going to tell you anything other than the same thing you both already know. So probably this challenging thought is going to come from someone that you think, I did not want to hear that from that person. Because I'd already made up my mind about Canaanite women. But isn't it funny? Our Savior hadn't. Aren't you glad he didn't make up his mind about anybody? You wouldn't be sitting here if he had. He thought about it, remember? Moses, let's blow them all off the planet. I've had it up to here. The stiff-necked people. Are you intellectually stiff-necked? I'm sure I know what's right. I'm sure I have it all figured out. Don't challenge me. Man, that's dangerous business because you're putting yourself in the place of infallibility. You're putting yourself in knowing things as well as God. Teaching as doctrine, the precepts of men. Careful, everybody. Keep an open mind. Swim upstream. Challenge what you think you know. If it doesn't lead to the love of Jesus Christ, it may be off the mark. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for... (sighs) Reaching across all the divides that we have to rescue all who are your image bearers, which last time I checked is 100% of humans. And that same 100% of image bearers are the 100% that you died for and the 100% that you're not willing that any should perish. Father, these are your creation and your children. I should treat them as no less than you do. But Father, help me this week to resist the urge to label the other. To feel disdain, to say just make them be quiet, make them go away. And let me see what somebody has to say. So that perhaps we can glorify the triune God. That's the goal, Father. I don't just want kumbaya, feel good unity. I want unity that ultimately points us back to you. But Father, you told us to love our neighbors, and that is period, full stop. So help us to do it. Father, we thank you, we praise you, we bow before you, we offer all the glory to you, in Jesus' name, amen.